have you all uh, please open with me to our text for this morning, which is Exodus uh, 2, verses 1 through 10. Again, that's Exodus 2, verses 1 through 10. And uh, we're continuing a sermon series this week that we began uh, last week uh, here at Ivanrest Church, uh, looking at the book of Exodus uh, for the remainder of the season of Lent. And uh, like we said uh, last time, the same way that the Israelites, God's people, were in captivity and slavery uh, in the land of Egypt, uh, in a similar way to that, we uh, still as sinful people are enslaved uh, to our sin. And just like uh, God made a way out of Egypt, though, and led the Israelites into freedom, that's what we believe we have through Jesus Christ as well. And so we're sort of using uh, this book of Exodus as a lens into uh, what we celebrate uh, and what we remember during the season of Lent and anticipate uh, with our celebration on Easter Sunday in just a few weeks. So we're going to continue looking at that uh, now with chapter 2. And this is what the text says. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child inside it and put the basket among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. And she saw the basket and sent a female slave to go and get it. She opened the basket and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And so she went and got the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you said Pharaoh's daughter to her. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, um, I'll confess, I don't really like math. Don't enjoy it. It's not something that's ever been particularly interesting to me, and so because of those two things, I never worked very hard at it in school. That's part of why I went to seminary instead. Um, In fact, if I remember correctly, I I think I actually asked one of my high school math teachers at one point what good the stuff he was teaching was going to do to me. Um, By that point, I knew that I was going to study English in college, and so I I think I said something to him along the lines of, I'm going to be an English major. When am I ever going to use this? I'm sure every teacher out there, and I know that there are a lot in this congregation, are thinking, oh, good, Brandon, you were one of those kids. Um, But my teacher wisely, I think, responded to me when I asked him that question, what good will this do me, when am I ever going to use it, Um, with the response, you'd be surprised. Fast forward to a few years ago, Sarah and I were working to put in a paver patio in our backyard at our house in Milwaukee, and uh, one whole side of the patio was curved, and so I had to go to Home Depot, rent a paver saw, and cut a bunch of the pavers at all sorts of different angles uh, in order to fit them in. And it took me a little bit to to figure out how to do that, Um, but there was a whole bunch of measuring and math involved to get the pavers just right. And you know what kind of math I think I ended up using in order to do that? It was the same kind that that teacher had been teaching me in that class. 
You see, just like with the broccoli your parents uh, used to make you eat, the exercising that your doctor tells you that you really should get around to starting, and yes, the stuff our teachers taught us in school, sometimes it's the things we don't like that actually end up being good for us. Uh, Sometimes it's the things we wish we didn't have to do that end up being the right things to do. In fact, sometimes it's the things that we think are going to be downright terrible that God ends up using for our good. And that's certainly the case here in our text uh, for this morning. After all, when Moses' mother placed him in a basket coated with tar and pitch and then set him afloat down the Nile River, do you think she could have imagined that God would eventually use that not just for his good, not just for hers, but actually for the good of their entire people? Let's, um, let's back up for a second and set the scene before we get any further into this text. Um, if you remember back to our text from last week, God's people, the Israelites, are living in, uh, in Egypt. And they initially moved there as welcome guests and enjoyed a special status as residents in the land for a couple hundred years. But eventually, a new pharaoh, a new Egyptian king, came to power and grew suspicious of them. He became afraid of their rapid population growth, and as we saw last week, as a result, he decided to enslave and oppress them, reasoning that hard work and bitter toil would cut them down to a more manageable size. When that doesn't happen, though, actually the opposite does, the Israelites keep multiplying, Pharaoh takes a more sinister approach. He decrees that all the Israelite boys, the ones who might eventually grow up and become soldiers who could fight against him, must be thrown into the Nile River. But there's at least one Hebrew mother, and I'm assuming actually a few more, who don't go along with that plan. We find out later that her name is Jochebed, and she's a Levite woman who marries a Levite man, becomes pregnant, has a son, And as the text says, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Now I'll confess, I never uh, actually caught this until I was studying this text uh, for this sermon. Um, But what's interesting here is that Moses' mother technically follows Pharaoh's order, doesn't she? Uh, Pharaoh says that all the Hebrew baby boys need to be thrown into the Nile, and ironically, that's actually exactly what Moses' mother does, uh, albeit with her own little twist. But she does do what he commanded. And as we'll see in just a little bit, that's actually the first of, of many ironies in this text. She modified Pharaoh's instructions a bit, first carefully placing her son in a watertight tabah. The Hebrew word um, is uh, actually literally translated ark, and it's the same word that the author of Genesis uses in Genesis 6 to describe what Noah built. And then she sets him afloat on the Nile River, hoping that this miniature ark will deliver her son safely through the waters, just like what happened with Noah and his family. It's a gutsy plan. Um, and uh, Moses' survival is still far from assured, but at least his mother is giving him a chance. Little does she know that she's actually giving him far more than a chance, though, because it just so happens that God is involved in this episode playing out on the banks of the Nile River. And when that happens, 
when God is involved in something like this. Like we said earlier, sometimes it's the things that seem like they have the least chance of succeeding that suddenly have the best shot. When you think about it, God does that sort of thing a lot, doesn't he? After all, when you read scripture, there's story after story like this. There's story after story of unlikely heroes, story after story of unlikely circumstances, story after story of unlikely successes where instead there should only be failure. This is only the second book of the Bible, and already we've seen numerous stories like that. For instance, like we already mentioned, there's the story of Noah and the ark, which when you think about it, it's kind of crazy how it all works out. I won't go into all the details of it, but the Cliff Notes version is that God decides the world has become too sinful, and so he sends a flood to cleanse the earth and start over. The only ones he spares are an old man named Noah, his family, and two of every kind of animal. God puts them all together on a giant boat, which as we said is called a tabah, an ark, and then he sets them afloat on the waters to keep them safe. And that's his plan. That's how God is going to repopulate the earth after the flood. Doesn't really seem like it would work out all that well. And yet it does. So does God's promise to a 100-year-old Abraham and a 90-year-old Sarah that they're going to have a son. That seems pretty far-fetched too, right? But then along comes Isaac in Genesis 21, the unlikely child of two unlikely parents. And just as unlikely as the son of Isaac's that God chooses to use a generation later, Jacob's name in the Hebrew literally means liar and deceiver. And he certainly lives up to it. And yet, he's the one, not his older brother Esau, that God decides to use to make his promises work. And now we have the story of Moses a condemned child afloat on a river in a basket. And once again, this is not supposed to work. This isn't supposed to go anywhere. This isn't supposed to lead to everything that it ultimately ends up leading to. And yet, God seems to specialize in exactly these sorts of situations. He specializes in using the sorts of people and circumstances that don't seem like they're going to pan out. He's the God of the long shot, the God of the hard to believe, the God of the unlikely. And yet repeatedly, he takes situations that we would look at and say, that's probably not going to work. And he makes it work. And Moses' story here is no exception. After floating down the river a ways, Moses' ark basket gets stuck along the riverbank, caught in the reeds. And as it just so happens, at that moment, Pharaoh's daughter arrives with her royal cohort for a little bath in the river. As they walk along the river's edge, she notices the basket stuck there, bobbing in the shallows. And she sends one of her attendants to go fetch it. The servant obeys, pulls the basket out of the water, and carries it to her. Pharaoh's daughter opens it comes face to face with a crying child and feels sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she says. It's sort of a role reversal of our traditional fairy tales, right? Because rather than being rescued by a prince, Moses is rescued by a princess. And then almost out of nowhere, Moses' sister shows up. And this princess, Pharaoh's daughter, doesn't know that it's his sister. To her, this is just some random Hebrew girl But this random Hebrew girl asks, shall I get one of the Hebrew women 
to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, Pharaoh's daughter answers. And so Moses' sister goes and gets his mother, another family connection that the princess is unaware of. Take this baby and nurse him for me, she tells Moses' mother, and I will pay you. And this is where we see some of the other ironies in this passage. First, like we said, it's ironic how Moses' mother actually does follow Pharaoh's command by putting him in the Nile. But the ironies in this passage continue. Because first, the one who rescues Moses from the Nile is actually the daughter of the very one who commanded that his life should be ended in the first place. Second, it's Moses' own mother who ends up being the one who gets him back in order to take care of him, keep him alive, which of course is what she actually wanted to do all along. And then third, she's going to get paid for it. And the payment that she's going to receive actually comes from Pharaoh's treasury, which is the very same treasury that has been benefiting so much from the slave labor of Moses' people. And so what we see in this passage is it's irony on top of irony. And on paper, there's no way that all of this should work out this way. But again, when God's involved, sometimes it's the things that don't seem like they'll work that end up working the best. Eventually, the time comes for Moses to go back to Pharaoh's daughter, though. The text says that when Moses grew older, his mother took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. This is where we see the final bit of irony in this passage. We don't know uh, exactly how long uh, this period of Moses' life lasted and how long he he lived in Pharaoh's uh, court, but it's clear that Moses did actually become a member of the royal family and that he was brought up in Pharaoh's court. In other words, if uh, you know the story, Moses is raised and nurtured in the very court that he is later going to oppose. Uh, He receives his training as a leader from the same people who he will eventually lead his people away from. He doesn't know it yet, but as he prepares for his future in the Egyptian royal family, Moses is actually preparing to leave Egypt. In fact, that's clear even from his name. The text says that Pharaoh's daughter names him Moses because she drew him out of the water, and that's certainly one meaning for Moses' name. It's the Hebrew meaning. That's because the name Moses is related to the Hebrew word Massah, which means to draw, as in I drew him out of the water. But Moses' name is also related to an Egyptian word, Um, and we'll put that up on the screen as well. I actually don't know how to pronounce this one because there's no vowels in it, Um, but I'm guessing it's something like maswa, and it means to bear or give birth to. Uh, And to be honest, there's actually a huge scholarly debate in the commentaries that I read way too much about, um, about which one of those two, the Hebrew or Egyptian meaning, is actually the true origin of Moses' name. Is it the Hebrew one, the Egyptian one, which one is it? At the end of the day, though, I actually don't really think that it matters because theologically, the point is the same. You see, just like Pharaoh's daughter drew Moses out of the water, giving birth to him in a sense and giving him a second chance at life, eventually Moses will do the same thing for God's people. He will be the one that God will use to draw Israel out of Egypt 
to give birth to them as a new nation and to lead them through the water to safety as well. Moses might be living and growing up in Pharaoh's court, but everything about him, even his name, foreshadows everything that God is going to do in and through him. God will use Moses to rescue his people, lead them to the promised land, and establish them as his chosen nation before the world. And as God's chosen people today, it's that same sort of rebirth and new life that we anticipate each year during the season of Lent. You see, just like there's a drawing out of the water for Moses and a drawing out of Egypt for the Israelites, there's a drawing out for us during these 40 days of Lent each year as well. As a season of repentance and fasting, Lent is meant to draw us out of the habits, the patterns, and the stubborn sins that too often are part of our day-to-day lives as human beings. Like we talked about last week, those kind of things uh, sort of build up in our lives, don't they? They creep up on us. They accumulate throughout the year. They often start small and simple, not so noticeable. And yet before we know it, a thought here or an action there can become an entire habit, a pattern, a way of life that ultimately stands in the way of our relationship with God. And the examples are endless, uh, but we all have things like that, don't we? Things that on the surface don't seem so bad, they're not that big a deal. Before we know it, they've started to take over our lives and crowd God out of the picture. And that's what this season of Lent is for. Even more than New Year's Day and the weeks that follow it, Lent is meant to be a season of reset for us as Christian believers. It's a six-week span for refocusing and recentering our lives on God. It's 40 days for drawing ourselves out of the habits, out of the practices, out of the things that have made it hard for us to live as God's redeemed and renewed people. And I'll admit, That's not always easy. It's not always enjoyable. It's not always fun. But like we said earlier, when God is involved, sometimes that sort of thing ends up being exactly what we need. Sometimes it's the things that we don't think will work that end up working out. Sometimes it's the things that only seem like a failure where we see God's grace and mercy most at work. And that brings us to the gospel. After all, Moses wasn't the only condemned child that God ever rescued. As Chuck DeGroat writes in his book, Leaving Egypt, many years after the exodus, a young boy was born in Bethlehem. An evil and paranoid tyrant called Herod decided to go on a child hunt of his own, much as Egypt's pharaoh had many years earlier. And quoting Matthew chapter 2, Now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. DeGroat continues, Out of Egypt... Every original Jewish reader seeing this in Matthew's gospel would have known exactly what that meant. 
They'd understand that Jesus was pioneering the long-awaited new exodus that would lead an exiled and enslaved people into the long-awaited promised land. Everyone who had experienced the hardship of slavery would find hope. And then de Grote concludes, this is your story, and this is my story. Our exodus road has been paved by Jesus himself. And that, my friends, is what this season of Lent helps us anticipate. We fast during Lent, we repent, we give things up and draw ourselves out of our sinful and backward habits and patterns, but we do so all the while anticipating the victory celebration of the Savior who has made that all possible in the first place. Even more than Moses, he is the one who put his life at risk for us. He endured the shame, humiliation, and horror of the cross. But then on Easter Sunday morning, he rose from the tomb, defeated death, and gave us new life as God's redeemed and renewed people. Like the Israelites, we too need a liberator, a redeemer, a savior. The good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, we have one. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for making a way out of our slavery to sin. We thank you that in your grace and mercy you did not leave us there, but instead you have redeemed and liberated us and brought us back to yourself, naming us your children your people, and calling us to live for you once again. We thank you for that incredible grace, and we thank you for the Savior who has made it possible, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray.